0: And in this session, I've entitled it A Kingdom of Priests, because we're talking today and ministering today about living in the reality of the kingdom, as opposed to living in the unreality of the world. I mean, it's like Matrix out there, and uh, we need to free our minds from the false thinking that's there. So when we're talking about living in the reality of the kingdom... What kind of people are we that live in the kingdom of God, the sphere of its operations? What's our nature? What's our role? Well, I've taken a passage from Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 to 6. Exodus 19, verse 5 to 6. God speaking. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Think about that. A kingdom of priests. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10, Peter is reflecting on this Old Testament passage and understanding that its fulfillment has come in the New Testament church, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 to 10. But you, and he's speaking about you here today, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may declare the goodness of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. In times past, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here Peter is saying that that our identity as kingdom people is that we're a chosen race. We've been chosen out of the world for a calling. And that calling is a royal priesthood, a kingdom kingdom of priests whatever you are here on earth today whatever career you have whatever upbringing you you you've come from if you're a christian today your primary calling on planet earth while you're here is to be a priest we are a kingdom of priests interesting that god would speak that through moses to the people when uh, he was about to establish a specialized order, the Levitical priesthood. Yet God was speaking something uh, greater than the Levitical priesthood. He was speaking about a calling to a whole group of people, a people that had not received mercy, but having received mercy, they ministered mercy themselves. What are we talking about when we talk about the essence of priestly ministry? Well, the essence of a priestly ministry, we see this in the Old and New Testament, is to mediate between God and man and mankind and God. When you think about the Old Testament priesthood and what they were operating and what they were there to do when God set up the sacrifices and the tabernacle and the temple, the priestly service was there in order that the mercy of God might flow from heaven down to his people on earth. It was based on blood sacrifice. Without blood sacrifice, there is no atonement, there is no forgiveness of sin. So picture in the Old Testament, the daily work of the priests, the slaughter of the thousands and millions over centuries of animals, the blood that was taken to the altar for God to see. And when God saw the blood, something happened. Instead of judgment coming to earth, mercy came to earth because of the blood. Jesus Christ himself is our great high priest. Uh, We're not in the Levitical order of, of the priesthood, we're in the order of Melchizedek. And not only is Jesus our high priest, but he is also not only high priest, but also sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. And Hebrews is such a wonderful epistle because in it we see Jesus in his priestly mediation. Not only is he shed his own blood for the sins of the world, but also we know that he went into the true holy of holies, into heaven. And there he presented the blood to his father and he said, Father, on the basis of my shed blood, I now intercede for this fallen world that forgiveness and salvation would come. Think about the Old Testament for a few moments. What would have happened in the Old Testament if the priests went on strike? Can you imagine that? We know what happens in London when the tube or the transport goes on strike. The whole of the city seizes up, it's hard to get from one place to another. Uh, we, We know the dangers of doctors going on strike or junior doctors going on strike. That the whole, he- I mean, it didn't happen like this, but can you imagine if the whole of the NHS went on strike? The whole healing ministry of the NHS would, would begin to falter. People would be lining up outside the hospitals, waiting for surgery, w- waiting for medical attention. But because NHS was on strike, there would be no healing ministry. Can you imagine in the Old Testament then that if the Levitical priests went on strike? What would begin to take place on the earth? The altars are clean. There's no blood on them. There's no sacrifice. The animals are all penned up. They're not being taken out almost on a conveyor belt to be slaughtered. And there's no blood on the altar. There's no blood before God. What would begin to take place? Well, what would begin to take place is God's ordained priesthood for ministering the blood without which there is no forgiveness of sins or atonement, it would mean that the release of grace and the workings of grace would begin to seize up. Imagine it. Sin would be stockpiled on the earth with no sacrifice to cover or deal with it. Imagine it. It would be like refuge, garbage, just piling up, spiritual garbage... Uh, in the nostrils of Almighty God. No atonement, no priestly ministry. What would be the result? Heaven's mercy would ultimately seize up because there's no blood sacrifice. What would be the result? God's mercy would no longer be flowing to his people through the altar. And therefore, what would take place? Residual judgment would remain and get stronger and stronger. No blood sacrifice, no release of mercy, no release of covenant blessing. What would happen is the heavens would harden and become like brass. God would give people what they deserved instead of what they didn't deserve, which is mercy. It would be a horror to behold as mercy, the last drops of mercy, dried up from heaven because there was no mercy blood sacrifice. Imagine if the priests in the Old Testament went on strike. Well, what if the priests in the New Testament? What if the kingdom of priests that Moses prophesied about and the royal priesthood that Peter declared us to be, what if we went on strike? What would be the ramifications of God's people going on strike in their priestly ministry? Do we even know what our priestly ministry is to go on strike? What would happen if all of God's New Testament priests in London today went on strike? Is there really a powerful spiritual priestly role for us on the earth today as Christians, or is this symbolism, or is this some sort of like, well, you know, it's a nice thought, I'm a priest, you're a priest, we're all priests, but it doesn't actually make any difference to God's operation and kingdom manifestation on the earth. Well, I believe that one of the most important restorations that needs to come to the body of Christ, certainly in Europe today, is this realization of the calling to New Testament priesthood and then the operation of this priesthood in order that God's mercy might come. Now, don't hear me wrongly. I'm not saying that God can operate his mercy as he chooses, as when he chooses. He says himself, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, uh, when I have mercy, however I have mercy. That's, that's his sovereignty. But sovereignly, God has also called us that were not a people to become a people so that we can partner with his ministry of mercy. Imagine that. God wants to minister mercy to the city of London, to Britain and Europe and the world. He wants to release mercy. And he has chosen us as his priests to partner with his ministry of mercy. This is what 2 Corinthians is all talking about, that we have been chosen to minister a new covenant, not the old covenant that ultimately brought judgment, but a new covenant that releases mercy into people's lives, into cities' lives, into nations' lives, the mercy of God. Surely this is what we find at the heart of that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Meditate on that phrase. What an incredible, remarkable prayer that is. That God's will that's established in heaven in all its peace, all its glory, no demonic opposition, no sin opposition, that will that's established perfectly in heaven, we have a prayer that can bring it down to earth in our daily lives, in our city lives, in our national lives, in the global life of this world. Your kingdom come, your will be done in London today as your desires are in heaven. That is a priestly ministration. Our priestly ministration is that we go to God and plead for mercy on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, not only for ourselves, but for the world around us. I'm talking today about primarily the ministry of intercession and prayer. And hey, Jesus is a good model for us when we think about this. Three years ministry on earth, over 2,000 years intercessory ministry. And thank God that Jesus Jesus' blood speaks today. How many of you know that Jesus' blood speaks? You remember in the Old Testament, Abel's blood spoke, didn't it, from the ground? Blood speaks because life is in the blood. Blood is powerful. When Abel's blood spoke, it spoke vengeance, didn't it, over Cain? But Hebrews tells us that Jesus' blood speaks today... Once sacrificed, once sacrificed, shed once, but that blood has eternal power, and the blood of Jesus is as powerful today as it was when the first drop hit the floor on the cross. I like to think, and in Luke's version, it's probably the fact that it was true, that when Jesus prayed that prayer, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, I like to think it says that he was crucified, he was nailed, he was on the cross. This was his first prayer. I like to think that the first drop of his blood that hit planet Earth as he was crucified spoke through the mouth of Jesus. And he said, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They hadn't repented. Yet Jesus was interceding for them. The blood was being shed for those that deserved no mercy. An intercession was being made on Calvary. Even though he was in pain, suffering, blood pouring from his wounds, touching planet earth. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know their left hand from their right hand, God said, about, about uh, uh, the city that, that, that um, uh, Jonah was sent to. Father, London, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The blood is speaking. The blood is speaking to the Father. And you know, Jesus' blood is irresistible to the Father's heart of mercy. Without blood application, the only thing we'll get is what we deserve. That's judgment. But with blood application, everything changes. The blood speaks to the Father. Jesus intercedes. His prayers will be answered because of his blood. When we pray in the name of Jesus and really understand what we're saying when we use that phrase... When we say, Father, hear our prayer in the name of Jesus, we are ministering as priests. And what's the power of the name? Back of it is the power of covenant blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. This is my blood shed for a new covenant and a new dealing of grace between God and and man, back of the prayers of Jesus and back of the prayers of the priestly saints is blood power. If we're going to go to God the Father on behalf of London today, why should He answer our prayers for mercy when the stench of this city, when the stench of this nation, when the stench of European sin, is flowing like like uh, a, a torrent? of um, polluted flow to the, to the stench in God's nostrils. Why would God answer a group, a holy priesthood, when they say, Lord, don't give Europe what it deserves, but Lord, we pray that you will send more mercy, more grace for this city, more mercy in our lives, in our city. Why would he answer There's only one reason that God will answer our priestly prayers for mercy. There's only one reason. There's only one plea that you have and I have before the throne of God, and that's the blood of Jesus. Why should I not judge London? Because of the blood of Jesus, Father, that speaks better things over this nation. Lord, we turn your attention, Father. Don't look at our sin, but instead turn your face to the blood and deal with us according to the blood and not our own sins. Father, would you look at London, Britain, Europe today through blood-tinted lenses? Don't look at us without looking through the blood of Jesus. You say, well, God could do that on his own. No. No, the history of intercession in the Bible is one of divine partnership. Yes, it begins and ends by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Abraham interceded over Sodom, don't think that Abraham was more righteous than God. No, the Holy Spirit was at work in him. It was God's mercy touching his heart that caused him to say, what if there's only ten righteous? When God said to Moses and gave him one of the greatest deals a minister's ever been given on planet earth, he says, I'll tell you what, Moses forget Abraham, I'll start all over again with you. You can be the new father of this movement. You can be the new father of my people. I will get rid of everyone. They all deserve it anyway. And I will put you and your line in place. And Moses, who had that promotional offer to make him the greatest man ever, to replace Abraham, he said, may it not be. And he began to intercede in the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Father was listening to God the Holy Spirit partnering with Moses, his servant. And if Moses had not interceded, if Moses had accepted the deal, oh, well, Lord, if that's your desire to bring judgment, then then let it come to pass. If he had allowed that, then surely judgment would have taken place. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is looking for people that will plead the blood of Jesus. God is looking for for people that will will make a great confession. What is a great confession to the Father in our priestly intercession? It is by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to speak the same things that Jesus is speaking. He's the head. What's he speaking to the Father over London today according to his blood? And what happens is, you see, sometimes I see this picture of us and we're praying and we're praying and Jesus is praying and Jesus is praying, but we're praying out of sync with Jesus. We're praying our own desires, we're praying this, we're praying that, we're out of sync. But as we yield to the Holy Spirit... Have you ever prayed in the Spirit? Have you ever felt God get hold of your prayers and bring unction and suddenly there's a a flow from your heart to His heart out of your mouth? It's intercession, there's an anointing. What's happening is the Holy Spirit is beginning to uh, synchronize the priestly prayers of his saints with what Jesus is saying on earth. The body is beginning to echo the voice of the head. This is powerful things that we're talking about. Let me read a, a couple of things about prayer to encourage you from E.M. Bounds, who has written some marvelous things on prayer. And this is, These are taken from his book, Purpose in Prayer, E.M. Bounds. Just listen. Listen and meditate. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organisations or more, and novel methods, But but what the church needs today is people whom the Holy Ghost can use, people of prayer, people mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through people. He does not come on machinery, but on people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil everywhere. Prayer, in one phase of its operation, is a disinfectant and a preventative. It purifies the air. How many of you know the air in London needs purification? It destroys the contagion of evil. Prayer is no fitful, short-lived thing. It's no voice crying unheard and unheeded in the silence. It is a voice which goes into God's ear, and it lives as long as God's ear is open to holy pleas, as long as God's heart is alive to holy things. The prayers of God's saints are the capital stock in heaven by which Christ carries on his great work upon earth. The great throes and mighty convulsions on earth are a result of these prayers. Earth is changed, revolutionized. Angels move on powerful missions, more rapid wing. And God's policy is shaped as the prayers are more numerous and more efficient. It is true that the mightiest successes that come to God's cause are created and carried by prayer. God's day of power, the angelic days of activity and power are when God's church comes into its mightiest inheritance of mightiest faith and mightiest prayer. God's conquering days are when the saints have given themselves to mightiest prayer, when God's house on earth is his house. Just a few, just a few quotes there to encourage you that God is on earth. The move. You know, we are a Pentecostal people, and we believe that the book of Acts, as Pentecostal people, is the blueprint and model for today's Christian church. Times change, but God's blueprint doesn't change. And when we go to Acts, and we, we go to the book of Acts, and the day of Pentecost... A passage all too familiar in our Pentecostal minds. The day of Pentecost comes. The power of God has fallen. People are getting saved. The Holy Spirit in mercy has been released in tremendous force. And Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16 and quotes Joel, the prophet Joel, and says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit. You know the passage well. Well, this wasn't just plucked out of some obscure prophet. There is a context to this passage that Peter is defining the current experience by. It's from the book of Joel. and Peter knew exactly what he was saying when he prophesied this. When you go to the book of Joel, you see it's in three chapters. About a year ago, I just felt prompted, having read this passage in Acts, to go back to Joel and to listen to it in one movement. I'd never done that. I had it on my earphones, you know, with your... Uh, Bible apps and everything, and I just listened to it, first chapter, second chapter, third chapter, and felt profoundly touched by what I was hearing. You see, in the book of Joel, we find that right at the beginning, in the first chapter, right through to the second half of chapter two, the judgment of God is evident. And there is a wasteland experience going on. Right at the beginning in chapter 1, it speaks about the locust. And God calls these locusts his great army. And this locust, the picture is of the locust going across the land, devouring the harvest and the fruitfulness that was there. What the fledgling locust left, the adult locust has eaten. What the adult locust left, the larval locust has eaten. What the larval locust left, the hopper locust has eaten. In some modern versions, you get this picture. You get the young locust, the old locust, the flying locust, the crawling locust, the hopping locust. I mean, if it's on the ground, the locusts have got it. If it's in the air or in the trees, the locusts have got it. If it's young fruit uh, that the old ones can't get to, the young have got to it. If it needs wisdom of how to get that fruit, the old ones have got it. I mean, they are sweeping. Have you ever seen a film of locusts? (laughs) Have you ever seen the film of locusts as the locusts fly in? You can't even see. As these locusts, as many as the grains of the sand, come in devouring, this is a wasteland period. And let me tell you something that probably you already know. There is an army of locusts that have been sweeping through Europe. Sweeping through Europe. And what have they been devouring? Not only have they been devouring the Christian heritage of Europe, that which was laid up in the barns of the past through former generations, revivals and movements and harvests, that which was brought in, that which was put in the barns, that which was the capital, the stock capital of the European church. They found their way into the barns and they are taking the grain of our past inheritance and harvest. But they are also sweeping through the nations of Europe, devouring the present harvest. How many of you know that there is a harvest in London, but that harvest that is present will only last for this generation? When someone dies in their sins, their harvest opportunity is over. You only get one chance every year for a harvest. If that harvest spoiled is spoiled, that whole year's harvest is gone. If that harvest is not reaped in that year, that whole harvest will begin to be destroyed. You only get the season of harvest for which that grain was produced. And it's sweeping. And these locusts are many and varied forms that are devouring our heritage, devouring our present church ministry, and devouring our nation's. Hordes and hordes of devouring locusts of false religion are flowing through Europe today. These things are spiritual. Devouring, devouring, devouring. Hordes of locusts, atheistic, secular, God-hating locusts have been munching on the harvest of Europe for decades and decades. Locusts of materialism. Locusts of perversity, devouring, devouring, devouring. The descriptions in Job are powerful. Now, I don't want to go too, down, too, too far down this route, but you've got to understand, something's wrong. With these locusts that are devouring, something was wrong. God was saying, can't you see the residual judgment that is working in your time? Someone says, oh, God's a gods of grace. Oh, the days of judgment are over. Don't you believe it? The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Romans 1, a horrific description of the wrath of God over humanity without grace. But thank God, it doesn't just say the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. It says, I am not ashamed of the... Say it again. Say it one time as loud as you can. I am not ashamed of of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to all that believe Jew and Gentile. It is the power of the shared gospel that brings the mercy of God into such a horrendous situation of the wrath of God being revealed. But in Joel, God was going to call on his people to turn to him in priestly ministry that this wrath could be averted. It was a call to priestly ministry. I'm going to read you a passage from the message version, starting in uh, Joel 2. Don't turn to it if you don't have the message version. Just let this message modern version sort of roll over you. And you'll see how it's a continuing description of the wrath of God unatoned but also a call to priestly intercession priestly intercession takes place and guess what happens a pentecost comes blow the ram's horn sorry blow the ram's horn trumpet in zion trumpet the alarm on my holy mountain shake the country up god's judgments on its way the day is almost here a black day a doomsday Clouds with no silver lining. Like dawn light moving over the mountains, a huge army is coming. This is the locust army. There's never been anything like it and never will be again. Wildfire burns everything before this army. The fire licks up everything in its wake. Before it arrives, the country is like the Garden of Eden. When it leaves, it is Death Valley. Nothing escapes unscathed. The locust army seems all horses, galloping horses, an army of horses. It sounds like thunder leaping on mountain ridges, or or like the roar of wildfire through grass and brush, or like an invincible army shouting for blood, ready to fight, straining at the bit. At the sight of this army, the people panic, faces white with terror. The invaders charge, they climb barricades, nothing stops them. Each soldier does what he's told, so disciplined, so determined. They don't get in each other's way. Each one knows his job and does it, undaunted and and fearless, unswerving, unstoppable. They storm the city, swarm its defences, loot the houses, breaking down doors, smashing windows. They arrive like an earthquake, sweep through like a tornado. Sun and moon turn out their lights, stars black out. God himself bellows in the thunder as he commands his forces. Look at the size of that army. And the strength of those who obey him. God's judgment day. Great and terrible. Who will survive this? But there is also this. It's not too late. God's personal message. Come back to me and really mean it. Come fasting and weeping. Sorry for your sins. Change your life, not just your clothes. Come back to God. Your God. And here's why. God is kind and merciful. He takes a deep breath, puts up with a lot, this most patient God, extravagant in love, always ready to cancel catastrophe. Who knows? Maybe he'll do it now. Maybe he'll turn around and show pity. Maybe when all's said and done, there'll be blessings full and robust for your God. Blow the ram's horn trumpet in Zion. Declare a day of repentance, a holy fast day. Call a public meeting. Get everyone there, consecrate the true congregation. Make sure the elders come and bring the children too, even the nursing babies, even men and women on their honeymoon. Interrupt them and get them here. Between the sanctuary entrance and the altar, let the priests, God's servants, weep tears of repentance. Let them intercede... Have mercy, God, on your people. Don't abandon your heritage to contempt. Don't let the pagans take over and rule them and sneer. And so where is this God of theirs? At that, listen, at that, God went into action to get his land back. He took pity on his people. God answered and spoke to his people. Look, listen, I'm sending a gift, grain, wine, and olive oil. And out of that comes this wonderful passage in Pentecost that Peter spoke. You see, Peter understood the context with which this Pentecostal outpouring was taken place. You know, sometimes people go to the day of Pentecost and they talk about suddenly the Holy Spirit came. And that is true. There is a suddenly with the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't just a suddenly. Listen, there had been three years of of disciple preparation between Je- by Jesus himself, three years of teaching and training and rebuking and correcting and aligning and releasing and mobilizing. And people had followed him for three years to get them to a place where they could carry such an anointing. Not only that, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he had revealed himself to hundreds and hundreds of people, 500 at one time. People knew that he'd been raised from the dead. But what did they do? Jesus said, I'm, coming, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so they went and began priestly intercession in the upper room. Trouble was, Jesus' church dwindled during that time. He spoke to thousands and thousands and thousands. But before Pentecost, he was left with a church that dwindled to 120 people. 100. Wow, Jesus, what a great church planter you are. What a great multiplier you are. 120 people. Nobody even knows they're there. They don't even afford their own house, just an upper room, two-bedroom flat. Well, it'd have to be quite big rooms for 120 to fit in, so that analogy breaks down. Praying, seeking, seeking for Pentecost. Not just saying, oh, well, God said it, I'll believe it. Imagine if Elijah, when God says, I'm sending rain to a barren land, I said, all oh, right, off you go, and not interceded. God partners with us. Without God, without us, God can, but without God, us God won't. Without us God can bless London but let me tell you something, without us God won't. Praying, interceding, seeking and while they were praying the heavens were beginning ready to burst with Pentecostal power. It had an effect on the heavens. Your kingdom come, your spirit come, it had effect on the heavens but also their priestly intercession even more importantly had an effect on themselves. What was going on in the upper room was that their hearts were being prepared to be able to carry the type of anointing that God was going to pour out on them. That they'd be able to carry it and steward it and marshal it not use it for self gain. That they'd be ready and and mature, having been discipled, having, having hungered, desired... Can you imagine the kind of desire that was in the upper room? God, send your Holy Spirit. Day two, God, send your Holy Spirit. God, send your Holy Spirit. Day three, day ten, God, send your Holy Spirit. Peter, we started with 300, we're now at 200. God, send your Holy Spirit. God, send your Holy Spirit. After a while, those that didn't desire it enough went out into the street and the marketplace. They didn't turn up. But people kept praying, and as they prayed, the sense of need, the sense of urgency, the sense of dependency, God was working in them that they might be fit vessels to carry the kind of grace, power, and anointing that God was planning on sending and that was his heart to send. Now, I don't think there's many Pentecostals in Europe today. I rather think that we are pre-Pentecostal. Pre-Pentecostal. You say, why? Because we're not carrying, at the moment, that kind of power, that kind of anointing that took place on the day of Pentecost with that kind of multiplication, that kind of maturing, that kind of mobilization that they had. We're not carrying that. If we're carrying anything, it's it's like the disciples pre-Pentecost, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Oh, wonderful, someone got healed. Well, they did that before Pentecost. Or we're sharing the Gospels in the villages. Lord, even the demons (laughs) in your name, people got sick. Well, they did that before Pentecost. We're pre-Pentecostals, generally speaking. Why do you say that? Because every generation of true Pentecostal people need an upper room experience. They need to be able to understand what it is as the people of Joel to go to the porch. In other words, to look out at what's happening in the world around us and to see it not as we'd like it to be. Oh, there's plenty of Christians that think everything's fine and dandy in Europe today. God's on his throne. grace. Oh, it's all wonderful. They don't realize that day by day, hundreds of thousands of souls are dying in their sins. It's not okay. We go to the porch. We see things as they are. And when you take the mask off and see things as they are, you're going to be horrified. You're going to be frightened. You're going to be concerned. Something's going to happen on the inside. Don't worry. Don't be alarmed. That's a good sign. Why? Because when you're alarmed at what you really see, you don't faint. Sometimes we do, but you don't faint. You turn And then you go to the altar where the blood of Jesus speaks better things. And you look at Calvary. You look at the finished work and you say, there's power in the blood. God, look at the blood. You intercede. And then you go back to the porch and you minister. Mature. Multiply. Mobilize. Four years. Who knows what God has planned A pre-Pentecostal people, ready to be used, ready to do what he's called them to do.